Good morning, you're listening to WTUL New Orleans News and Views. I'm DJ Mimi. It is Monday, March 30th. Thanks for tuning in to the radio and sticking with us. Glad that you're here. And on today's show, we just heard Democracy Now! Daily episode. Got a full update from them. And we're going to jump into TaxCast. We usually get TaxCast about once a month on News and Views, so it's nice to have a little regularity here. On this episode of TaxCast, it is Climate Crisis, Transition, and Tax Justice with Dr. Gail Bradbook, co-founder of Extinction Rebellion, on a vision of hope. Then, in the second half hour, we're going to jump over to Counterspin, which we also get to listen to on Mondays regularly. Yay for ritual. This is Mary Grant on water and COVID-19, and David K. Johnston on the last bailout this week on Counterspin. No directive has been more repeated during the COVID-19 pandemic than wash your hands, a simple act, but a powerful intervention to stop the spread of disease. But what if you can't? That's the reality faced by millions of Americans who have their water shut off because they're not able to pay for it. Along with many other things, COVID-19 has underscored the individual and communal harms of water affordability crisis in the country that usually remains hidden. We'll hear about the problem and response to it from Mary Grant, a public water for all campaign director at Food and Water Watch. That's at 10.30 with Counterspin. All right, that's it from me. Let's jump into the show. Thanks for listening and sticking with us. Be well. Thanks. This network. This month, the Tax Justice Network released a special series on financing climate justice, which you can find on our website, www.taxjustice.net. You're listening to the TaxCast from the Tax Justice Network. If you want to make sure you never miss an episode, drop me an email on naomi at taxjustice.net and I'll add you to the subscribers list. I'll ping you over an email once a month. Tell me what you think of the show. We're going to talk to Gail Bradbrook now, co-founder of Extinction Rebellion. Gail was on the Tax Justice Network board for quite a while and that's not surprising because the solutions to the climate crisis we're living through are really inseparable from tax justice and economic reform. Gail, let's kick off with looking at where Extinction Rebellion is right now. Can you give us a kind of snapshot of how you see it? So we've launched in the autumn of 2018 and we've been named as the number one influencer in the globe on the climate crisis, which is incredible. We've got into 72 countries, got over 700 groups across the world. Our initial goal was to shift the Overton window People now accept we're in an absolute state of emergency. So I feel really proud of that and our contribution to that. And obviously there are other movements have been part of that. There's been a whole shift in the consciousness. And um, I think the fact that we centred our movement on grief and emotion and really feeling these times has been a really important part of that move. Obviously, we've made some mistakes. <laughs> uh, we've been trying to figure out organising social movement while it's growing under our feet at a rapid scale. And we stand on the shoulders of so many other movements and a, a history of resistance. 
Extinction Rebellion came out of a network called Rising Up and actually you can trace its origin back to a conversation, from my perspective at least, with John Christensen of the Tax Justice Network. I would say a really pivotal moment as I saw it in the tax justice movement was UK Uncut and when they occupied things like Starbucks and so on, that really put this agenda into the public consciousness and I think it's really important that the tax justice movement because it involves people doing deep research and so on understand the importance of civil disobedience for change that you have to have those moments of confrontation and confrontation doesn't mean violence it can be done very peacefully and beautifully and respectfully but it is a way of saying no. The climate crisis deniers have kind of been pushed back quite a lot now for the moment Do you think that there's not enough fear about the future somehow? Well, actually, if you look at some of the data, the majority of the public now understand that there is an emergency. People need to know that there's something that can be done. And because Extinction Rebellion doesn't talk about specific policies, and that's for good reason, you know, we say, how could we possibly have all the answers? There's always a debate to be had about, you know, how much is this about renewable energy or carbon taxation or carbon budgeting or going vegan or telling people not to fly or, you know, there's a whole pile of things. We've opened the space for those conversations. So whenever I meet people working in this field in some way, they say, goodness, you guys have changed the discourse. So we don't have to be all things to all people. Our job is to open the window for conversations and for other people to present ideas. The solutions exist. The problem is the lack of political will. Same in the tax justice movement, right? You guys know how to solve tax dodging. Mm -hmm. You've got it nailed. The issue is a lack of political will, isn't it? How do you get political will through civil disobedience? So that's where the focus needs to stay. So let's talk about the tax justice movement and uh, climate crisis movement. How do they bolster each other? How do they intersect? I think it's really crucial this year that we make these linkages between the tax justice movement, the wider movement for economic justice and the climate crisis. We know that tax is a really key issue. For example, you can reprice natural resources, the idea of whether it's carbon taxes or carbon rationing. We know that Fossil fuels are subsidised by a horrendous amount. That means that fossil fuels are mispriced through these subsidies and that's anti-competitive to renewables. Though I would say that renewables should be subsidised because, for obvious reasons, we need to transition to a green energy We know that tax can be used to redistribute wealth and we know from the sort of spirit level analysis of inequality that people are more willing and able to tackle the climate and ecological crisis when there's less inequality around, there's a direct correlation that taxation is needed for bringing in revenue for tackling the crisis. So how are we going to pay for free public transport? How are we going to pay farmers to transition to more agroecological solutions? It needs money, that kind of Green New Deal based in ecological and climate justice needs money. And, um, you know, for folks that are listening to this that may be more from the climate side of things, I I don't know if they realise the extent of the tax injustice issue that you've got these major corporations and rich people that go offshore with the money it's breathtaking and I think the only reason people get away with it is that people don't understand it so you know one of the issues is how we share this information so people can get it I mean there's lots of kind of complicated jargon in the tax and economics field that put people off and I think we have to come up with a new narrative and I think also you know part of that is this whole idea around corporate accountability 
and you know that's part of the tax movement isn't it is looking at what the as Prem Seeker called them the pinstripe mafia are up to the big four accountancy firms and the and the law firms etc and I think they need to be a major target this year. Let's uh, talk about the role of business because for a long time there's been this conversation always comes back to the economy versus the planet growth versus the planet and you know debates about capitalism anti-capitalism pro-capitalism there's so much to unpack there isn't there i think it's a utterly crucial issue and we have to get this right this year absolutely and the first thing i would say is let's not jump into ideological camps i'm anti this i'm pro that all of these words have got baked in ideas and different people mean different things by them. The minute you state yourself as an anti-capitalist, you're, you're in a camp and other people think you're against them. It's completely arguable that we haven't even got capitalism because half of all world trade goes through secrecy jurisdictions. And my understanding of capitalism is you're supposed to have transparency of markets. We've got subsidising of uh, basically monopolies as well through giving these enormous tax breaks. So that's not even proper competition. Exactly. And I think that there isn't one consensus, I know it's all about the Washington consensus around neoliberalism, but there isn't one consensus about what a good economic system looks like. And so I think that's where we need to have the conversation. And I think a really good starting point for it is what is the intention of an economic system? And it should have a moral intention, right? And Interesting, Milton Friedman, I'll be paraphrasing him, he says something along the lines of, because the market-based system will ensure that no power is concentrated, the kind of harm that can be done by concentrated power will not be done. So Milton Friedman wants a system whereby there's no power concentrated and no harm done. And Mrs Thatcher actually said something similar. When we know that eight people have got the same wealth as half of the world's population, right? And we know there's all this rigging and corruption. And I don't think, you know, outside the tax justice movement, people know half of what's going off, you know, when you know what's happening in a a secrecy jurisdiction. So let's start with a discussion about what the economy is actually for. We are undoubtedly killing life on earth. Goodness me, the debate needs to be, what are we doing wrong? And we've heard the elites at Davos talking about planting a trillion trees. Well, great, yes. And where's the actual plan? Is that a distraction that we'll be planting trees while they're buying up real estate in the mountains, you know? Where's the actual plan that we all get through this? Or are we just going to throw Africa to the dogs? You know, that's what it feels to me this is about, is shoring up some people's safety. The UN have talked about the collapse of civilization. The Committee on Climate Change said that we can't manage four degrees of warming we won't be able to adapt to it so and that's the pathway we're on this system's finished so the conversation should be let's get real this is finished it's going to kill itself off anyway it's killing us anyway (laughs) so what are we going to do instead and let's rewire humanity extinction rebellion at the minute are working on a plan to push that agenda forwards Right. I want to ask you about um, what is the role of business? Uh, And, you know, we can have growth that is a desirable kind of growth. 
doesn't have to be all about GDP. Yeah, I think if we start to have a narrative about what the economic system is like right now, the one that we're working on is to use cancer as an analogy. So a healthy body, bits of it will grow and replenish and bits of it will be more like steady state, you know, bodies uh, grow up and things like that. So some growth is good, but growth for the sake of growth is the logic of the cancerous tumour. And at the minute, You can think of the investment community as being the heart that pumps resources around the system. It's perfectly willing to pump them through the arteries of the finance system into a cancer. That needs to stop. You need an immune system to tackle diseases, you know, like cancer, and the immune system normally deals with cancer. However, when it goes wrong, when the regulatory system, the legal system that we're sitting under is, you know, offshore, if you don't like the regulations here, let's have law avoidance and go offshore and get a different form of law, your actual immune system is attacking your body. So we've got to deal with that. In Extinction Rebellion, we're very much in support of the Stop Ecocide campaign that we need to bring in the fifth crime against peace at the Rome Statute level alongside the crimes of genocide, war crimes and so on. And the crime of ecocide would criminalise mass damage and destruction of the environment and would put the onus on us all to repair the harm being done through this crisis. And I think business leaders as a constituency need to start pointing out some of the systemic issues that mean that they are trapped in unhelpful behaviours. You know, one of the issues is that we generally, in terms of the environment, only have civil laws to protect us and if you even get caught and if you even get found guilty and if you even get fined you know it's a cost of doing business you'll think 10 times about doing mass damage and destruction if you're going to be criminalized so we need criminal law in that space i believe you might be able to tell me naomi but that when they get these fines sometimes they write them off against the tax bill don't they i mean (laughs) you know they're like parking tickets Um, (laughs) you know if you're rich enough then you can park anywhere you like yeah yeah and we we cannot afford that not not, not things not things like tar sands and and fracking and we know that there's a tipping point for the climate into a different state from which you cannot reverse. And so what cognitive dissonance is going on on that people think they can get away with that? I, I want to just go back to the idea about growth and uh, the fact that we can have growth, uh, but we can have growth in social terms like social care, growth in social care, growth in education. What I thought was a really great concept, private restraint and public luxury. So I don't need a car if we've got free public transport and, you know, you know, obviously you have to have different transport forms depending on which communities you're in. There are solutions that exist and I think that it's moving into that space of public luxury, of universal basic services. That's the kind of thing that we, we need to be aiming for. But obviously that requires governments to have money to spend and deploy and that means we have to have a functional tax system which we don't have at the minute. Yeah, it's really interesting that um, the real radicals are are never highlighted as radicals, right? So we've got people running governments who are doing extreme things, extremist things, which are very damaging for people, for the environment and all the rest of it. And yet you get uh, Extinction Rebellion was put on a terrorism organisation watch list by the police. How do you react to that? Utterly unsurprised. That's what's been happening to activists for many years. But you're quite right. Where are the real extremists here? 
in years to come, we'll look at people like Bolsonaro and Trump and Putin and the Australian Prime Minister, etc., as criminals that pushed genocide because we're on a trajectory to four degrees of warming and Jonas Rockström of the Potsdam Institute says about half the world will die, according to him. Billions and billions of people, that's genocidal policies that are being pushed. That's where the extremism lies. When they put us on those kinds of lists, everybody's like outraged and um, to an extent it's quite useful to the movement because it's like, yeah, this is what the state's force really looks like. What are Extinction Rebellion's plans for this year? So at the time of recording, Naomi, we're in a strategic process, so what I'm going to say is not nailed down, and so it's more my take on things. There needs to be a deep focus on the role of the economy in this crisis and an understanding of that and a rewiring of the system and also on the role of certain bits of the media that are acting against the climate and ecological crisis with how they're messaging In terms of focusing on the economic system, what I'm hoping we'll bring forward this year is a focus on debt refusal. You know, debt is something that people hold with shame and struggle with, and the debt-based economy fuels the cancerous-type growth that's unhealthy. We're talking about something like XR Money Rebellion, where we would be taking actions to banks and to the big four accounting firms and all that type of stuff. And alongside of that, we might refuse debts. Now, some people can do debt disputing, which is not illegal, but it's a way of saying, is this debt really legitimate? And some of us may take on debts or may already have debts and we say we're not paying it back to the system, really force this conversation about the economic system that we have. My great desire for this year is that we announce our own, if the government won't do it, our own international citizens' assembly. The way that would look is you have a like what you call a multi-stakeholder panel, which would have economists on, and you use convergent facilitation to look at what people feel is important in a market-based economy, what businesses need, and what's not working, and what's you know what could be upcycled, if you like, from this system. And you present that to experts' opinions presented to this panel, representative panel of citizens, and they make a decision. If When people in the elites and business world start to call for that, then we'll know that things have shifted. Right. You were talking about uh, sometimes you, you speak with bankers and all sorts of people, which is great. And they're getting hassled by their kids. And it's just very interesting. The younger generation are managing to connect with them. Well, Uh, literally around their own dining table, right? So, (laughs) yeah, I've been told in a number of ways that they're getting hassled from their kids. So do not underestimate your power. You have got serious power to influence the people in your own families and far wider, by the way. And that's really important because all of us in this system that we live in are running some form of cognitive dissonance. We care deeply about the future and our children, and yet we're sitting in some form of complacency, some form of denial, some form of idea that, well, we can just do something from within our box and things will get better. Well, sometimes the box is a problem, isn't it? And some people are even trying to make sure the box is nice and solid and can't get changed. I think it's quite correct for the young people to be saying this is about our future so we've been willing in the west to let this crisis run and for the problems to be felt by people who have done the least to cause the crisis 
the fact that we have had so much injustice in that way is now coming home as an intergenerational injustice. It's not for everybody to join us on the streets and get arrested, but if it's for you, join us on the streets, because another emotion to feel is the emotion of being in your true power. You've been listening to Gail Bradbrook of Extinction Rebellion on the TaxCast. For all those listening who are in lockdown because of the coronavirus, we're thinking of you. Stay safe. Let's look after our elders and let's make this unprecedented crisis the time for reform in the public interest. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you next month.
You're listening to WTUL New Orleans News and Views. I'm DJ Mimi. It is Monday, March 30th. We just heard from TaxCast, and now we're going to jump into Counterspin. On Counterspin this week, it is Mary Grant on water and COVID-19 and David K. Johnson on the last bailout. Thanks for tuning in. Be well. Stay safe. Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, no directive has been more repeated during the COVID-19 pandemic than wash your hands. A simple act, but a powerful intervention to stop the spread of disease. But what if you can't? That's the reality faced by millions of Americans who've had their water shut off because they're not able to pay for it. Along with many other things, COVID-19 has underscored the individual and communal harms of a water affordability crisis in this country that usually remains hidden. We'll hear about the problem and responses to it from Mary Grant, Public Water for All campaign director at Food and Water Watch. Also on the show, Goldman Sachs, buy these 13 stocks poised to dominate in a market where everyone is paralyzed by fear was a real headline I read recently. The cravenness of capitalism is center stage right now, but that doesn't necessarily translate to critical press coverage of how that worldview shapes legislative response to economic shocks. As media consider the $4.5 trillion corporate bailout that's part of the coronavirus stimulus package, we'll consider media's own track record on asking the right questions. During the bailouts of 2008, we talked with reporter and author David K. Johnston. We'll revisit that relevant conversation today. That's coming up, but first, a quick look back at some recent press. As one would expect, when the president directs the anxieties of a frightened nation towards foreign scapegoats, the U.S. is in the midst of a wave of anti-Asian racism. A Korean woman was punched in the face in midtown Manhattan by a woman shouting, You've got coronavirus, you Asian expletive. Two Hmong men were refused service by multiple Indiana hotels on the grounds that they were likely diseased. And Vietnamese-American students were bullied at their California school by other kids yelling coronavirus. There was condemnation for Trump's unapologetic China virus racism, But, as Alan McLeod noted for FAIR.org, outlets like the New York Times and CNN had been using the same or similar phrases for weeks. Worse, corporate media seem to have accepted Trump's premise that China is uniquely to blame and must be held accountable for its sins. At the March 16th Democratic presidential debate, CNN asked both Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden to describe the consequences China should face. China appears to be one of the few countries to get a grip on the virus, reporting a handful of new local cases this week. They've begun sending doctors and medical supplies to other countries. For much of the media, that just proves their Orientalist tropes about the Chinese being inherently sneaky and untrustworthy. Donating ventilators and masks to Italy, Japan, the Philippines, Iran, 
CNN says that's China trying to deflect blame and rehabilitate its image, trying to curry favor by helping. The Guardian explains it's China's propaganda machine trying to rewrite history by using aid as soft power and a propaganda tool. The idea that the Chinese might genuinely wish to stop the rest of the world from being ill or dying appears almost unthinkable. So strong is the xenophobia in much of the reporting. The World Health Organization has praised China's response, but so what? The Financial Times calls it slow, hesitant, sluggish. Or else they did too much. The New York Times critiqued the country's sledgehammer approach that Slate called overly aggressive and ineffective. It seems they should have gone for a voluntary system of restrictions instead. The Guardian was conflicted, undecided whether China was botching its response or else crushing this disease as firmly as it crushes dissent. In some, McLeod writes, media are unsure whether China is doing too much or not enough, but they do agree whatever it's doing, it's bad. And, lest we forget, the U.S. is scheduled to hold a very important election in November. What will the COVID-19 crisis mean for voters' access to the polls and the very legitimacy of the election? Fair's Julie Holler notes that some journalists are tracking these important questions. The Center for Public Integrity, in partnership with Time magazine, spoke with voting rights experts to lay out the possibilities and pitfalls of different responses, including a bill that would require no-excuse vote-by-mail options and 20 days of early in-person voting in every state, as well as offering federal funding for the implementation of those measures. But, as voting rights experts explained, the changes have to be implemented thoughtfully to avoid disenfranchisement. Mail-in ballots from communities of color, for example, have historically been rejected at higher rates, and language, ability, and even poor access to reliable mail service, as on Native American reservations, for instance, can be a barrier for many. And, as Politico, among others, reported, election officials warn these steps have to be jumped on immediately in order to have any chance of being ready to roll out for November 3rd and to work out all the potential security and disenfranchisement risks. Not all outlets appear equally concerned. Some just aren't talking about it. Holler couldn't find any on-air discussions of the impact of the pandemic on the elections on ABC, CBS, or NBC. Others are actively playing down concerns. CNN's Chris Saliza argued that the idea of Trump interfering with the election schedule should be put in a bin with all of the other conspiracy theories kicking around the Internet. But that doesn't address concerns about legitimacy. As New York Magazine's Ed Kilgore pointed out, mail-in ballots take longer to count, and a delay in finalizing results, particularly in the context of new methods of voting, could leave the vote vulnerable to accusations. Quote, Is there any remote chance Donald J. Trump would fail to fire off tweets every 15 minutes, alleging without a shred of evidence that the godless socialistic Democratic Party was stealing the election with millions of illegal votes from homicidal Mexicans? Close quote. Well, no reporter or pundit should be downplaying concerns, and all media should be covering this crucial story consistently and prominently from now until Election Day. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair.
Without doing a count, I'm confident saying that vanishingly few articles noting the critical importance of frequent hand-washing during the COVID-19 pandemic evince any acknowledgement at all that not everyone can do that. As some fight for attention for laid-off workers, for overstretched nurses, for underprotected delivery workers, others are also fighting to keep the distressingly large number of Americans who've had their water shut off for inability to pay in our vision. Not just now, but in whatever's coming after. Mary Grant is the Public Water for All campaign director at Food and Water Watch. She joins us now by phone from Baltimore. Welcome to Counterspin, Mary Grant. Thank you so much for having me. I say a distressingly large number of people. The thing is, we didn't really know the full scope of the shutoff problem until Food and Water Watch did some mapping of it a few years back. So when we think of folks who are without water in this country, not necessarily this second, but generally, how many people are we talking about? We estimate that as many as 15 million Americans experienced a water shutoff in 2016. So millions of people every year lose water service because they can't afford their water bills. 15 million. That's I think, mm-hmm. is a much higher number. And that is some of it's temporary, but that's at any given moment during, during 2016 you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah, the entire year. Um, We don't have numbers on how many people are restored each year from water service, but data from Detroit, Michigan, like a hotspot of the water affordability crisis, found that about half of people who were shut off last year are still without water this year. So over a year, only about half of the people actually have their service restored. So we're talking about as much as um, 2.5% of Americans could be without water because they can't afford their bills. Well, there is action right now in response to COVID-19 to stop some planned shutoffs. What's going on on that front? Cities are finally taking action and realizing the scope of the affordability crisis and how much it impacts public health. We're seeing more than 400 communities and states across the country that have suspended water shutoffs protecting more than 148 million people across our country, making sure that people have water to wash their hands. It's so basic. The the first thing that CDC tells you to do to help prevent the spread of disease is to wash your hands. But if you don't have water at home, you can't take that simple action to protect yourself or your family or your community. Well, we're talking about realizing how much harm shutoffs would do at this time, but that would seem to imply action beyond that. And you've, you've just uh, sort of referenced it. Restoring service. What about restoring service to people who have already been disconnected? Only a couple dozen communities are actually taking that next step of restoring service. And communities that have promised to restore service, like Detroit, Michigan, and Buffalo, New York, they're really struggling to actually turn the taps back on. It was so easy for them to shut off water, but now that the the onus is on them to actually restore the service, it's taking a very long time, and people are in crisis mode. And Detroit is a hotspot of the coronavirus disease outbreak. Um, There's a lot of people there really suffering right now, and the grassroots organizations from We the People of Detroit Detroit, the People's Water Board in Michigan are really trying to get people a water turned back on and giving people emergency water supplies while they're without water right now. Well, it sounds like a lot of the action is at the state level and even at the municipal level. So it's it's good, of course, where it happens, but it's kind of patchwork. Where are the feds on this? So there was actually a really good provision in the House package for the phase three of the coronavirus response package. So the House version released on Monday actually would tie aid to having a moratorium on shutoffs and would also provide funding to help localities restore service and 
give aid to low-income households for, to pay their water bills during this crisis. But it didn't make it into the final compromise bill that the Senate passed yesterday. It's such a huge disappointment that there's nothing helping households pay their water bills, helping cities restore water service in this corona aid package. But we are hopeful there's going to be a phase four package we're hearing mm -hmm. that maybe we can get some water funding in that. Well, we wouldn't need to be doing this right now if we had some overarching legislation. So I wonder if you could just tell listeners about the Water Act, which is designed to fight not just the shutoffs, but kind of the nexus of problems that we're facing around water. Yeah, the Water Act is in Congress right now. It's the Water Affordability, Transparency, Equity, and Reliability Act. Introduced by Representative Brenda Lawrence from Detroit in the House, 85 co-sponsors, and it's in the Senate with Senator Sanders and up four co-sponsors. So this is a comprehensive piece of legislation to really restore the federal government's commitment to safe water for all, to take the onus off of localities, off of ratepayers, to have that federal investment in our water systems, to make sure that every person has safe water and water that's affordable at home. It would fully fund our water and sewer systems, provide funding to remove lead from school pipes. It would help rural households with septic systems and household wells. So this is a really comprehensive piece of legislation that would prevent shutoffs from happening by making sure people have affordable water in the first place. Well, if we could step back just for a second, I understand that when you were trying to get the data on the extent of shutoffs, it wasn't easy to get the information from, in particular, private utilities. Private companies overwhelmingly refuse to give us any data on water shutoffs. They're not subject to state information act requests, and they declined to reply. Um, a lot of them pointed out that they're not subject to the state freedom of information laws, and so they don't have to tell us, and they are declining to tell us. And some just ignored us outright. Uh, we had a couple private operators hang up on interns who were trying to follow up to get data. So it was just a big struggle to get data because there's a black box. We conducted state um, surveys, so we looked at the two largest cities in each um, state um, and requested information under state Public Information Act laws. Um, so we got um, 73 cities to respond, but only one private utility responded. Wow, that, yeah. Ten companies just outright refused to provide us data. So really, we really need to have more transparency on this so we can really map the affordability crisis in our country. We're, even states are struggling to collect that data and utilities are struggling. So we need to have comprehensive laws to require transparency about shutoffs and to also protect vulnerable populations from shutoffs beyond this crisis. Well, I'm sure some people are saying, why is it a private sector thing at all? And listeners will have heard stories about, for example, Nestle siphoning off water to bottle and sell at the same time as people are being shut off because they can't pay. Privatization, where does privatization kind of fit into this? So we don't know if private companies are shutting off households more because we don't have data on that. Nationwide, about 90% of people receive their water service from a publicly owned utility. Privatization is pretty rare in the United States, mm -hmm. but there are certain states like New Jersey um, where there's a lot of privatization and a lot of private activity. Often this is systems that have always been privately owned. From their beginning, the systems were privately owned. And there's also efforts by these large companies like American Water, Aqua America, Veolia, Exuet, to purchase and take over water systems across the country. But there's a lot of public opposition to privatization, so there hasn't been a wave of privatization in the United States. Our research has found that private companies charge, on average, about 59% more than local governments do. So we would expect private companies to have higher rates of water shutoff because they charge higher rates. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we just don't have that data, and we've really struggled to get data.
Well, as we keep saying, the water crisis is an affordability crisis, meaning it overwhelmingly affects poor people, meaning corporate media don't really care that much or that often. Let's just be real. But when they do pay attention, when reporters do focus on it, they certainly can play a role in maybe pushing public officials to do more. What's the place for reporters here? Oh, there's a really good place for reporters. Bridge Magazine in Michigan has done an amazing job covering the Detroit water crisis. They've actually collected data and gotten good data from the city and compiled in a way that's accessible for the public. It's been so helpful to see actual information about not only shutoffs, but restorations and who's being effective, where the shutoffs are occurring, and overlapping that with public health information. So there are some local outlets that are doing great work. And nationally, The Guardian magazine has really stepped up looking at water shutoffs across the country, as well as like looking at restorations of service and using that information to push public officials, other localities and states to take action. Because if reporters and the media is covering it, it's informing the public um, and allowing them, giving them opportunity to call on their elected officials to take similar actions and to protect it. We need to know about the crisis in order to have good public policy. Absolutely. Well, finally, just like you don't like to make arguments against mass incarceration by saying, well, it's very expensive, you know, it's distressing Mm -hmm. to feel forced to argue that we should care about people without access to water because they're getting ill might make other presumably more important people get ill. You know, that's not a frame that's going to carry us forward or really ground us in this properly. But on the other hand, if we don't talk about water rights now, when is it going to be more central? You know, so just just final thoughts on what folks can do and the, the state of affairs at the moment. Water is always a human right. It's always necessary for basic human dignity and living a life with dignity. People should have water that's safe and affordable at their home at all times, not just during a pandemic. Um, and it, it's not just about, you know, community well-being. It is about community well-being, but it's also about human health, protecting yourself, protecting your families. Everyone deserves to ha- be able to live a life with dignity and having access to safe water. Right now, we're urging people to take action in their communities, call on their government to issue an executive order to stop all water shutoffs in their state, as well as to restore service to all households previously disconnected. But long term, we really need to address this root cause, the affordability crisis, by passing the Water Act. So we're asking people to contact their representative, their senator, ask them to co-sponsor the Water Act. Maybe we can push it to be included in one of these um, coronavirus packages passing through Congress right now so that we can have an economic stimulus. Because the Water Act isn't just about fully funding our water systems, providing safe and affordable water. It's also a jobs bill would create up to a million jobs across the country at a time when we have record-breaking unemployment rates. And we really need to pass robust infrastructure legislation to make sure people have safe water at home and in their communities. And now is the moment that we can do that. So we definitely urge everyone to reach out to their elected officials to take action on this issue. We've been speaking with Mary Grant, Public Water for All campaign director at Food and Water Watch. You can follow their work online at foodandwaterwatch.org. Mary Grant, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much for having me. The coronavirus is new. But economic shocks and the government response of bailing out certain industries are not. We have experience to draw from there. In 2008, the New York Times described the announced $700 billion bailout bill presented to address the financial crisis as, quote, one of the most favored new options being discussed in Washington and on Wall Street, close quote. 
Of course, many asked, what about Main Street? The people whose calls to legislators had spurred the House's initial rejection of the legislation. Once policy has that much-vaunted bipartisan support, it's an elite media juggernaut. But Counterspin spoke with a journalist who'd been calling for skepticism from the start. David K. Johnston, then recently retired from the New York Times, is an investigative reporter and author of a number of books, among them Free Lunch, How the Wealthiest Americans Enrich Themselves at Government Expense and Stick You with the Bill, and most recently, It's Even Worse Than You Think, What the Trump Administration is Doing to America. When he spoke with Counterspin in October 2008, he just issued a call for reporters covering the bailout not to, quote, repeat the failed lapdog practices that so damaged our reputations in the rush to war in Iraq and the adoption of the Patriot Act, close quote. Counterspin asked him first for his general assessment of big media's bailout coverage. Well, the electronic coverage, broadcast television and cable, has been awful absolutely awful, including uh, both the CBS Evening News with Katie Couric and Brian Williams on the NBC Nightly News opening their newscasts on Monday night, September 29th, when the stock market tanked with a flat-out untrue statement. The very first thing they told their audience was that this was the biggest one-day decline ever in the stock market. It was only the third biggest decline in just the last 21 years. (laughs) The coverage in the print media has gotten better as we have gone along, A lot of it is still very gullible. I'm particularly troubled by some areas of print, including the Washington Post, that just seem to accept that, you know, you need to trust the official version of events. But both the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times have actually done some extraordinary, solid reporting on this stuff and have dug up some very troubling things. I know you had a site for a former colleague of yours, Gretchen Morgenstern, in the New York Times, who's done some reporting that maybe she's the only one on. So there are there are some investigations going on there, right? There's, there is some. Fundamentally, the problem here is the constant problem with Washington journalism, which is this idea that sources are what matter. And this is fueled by editors, you know, who say, well, the reason we have you in our Washington bureau is to talk to the official sources. Well, you'd probably get better coverage if you had a reporter sitting in your newsroom in Chicago or Rochester where I live or Los Angeles reading the government's record and writing about all the things the government has to disclose. We've known there was a high risk of something like this happening. Not exactly what would happen, but some kind of serious collapse for 14 months. And one of the questions I haven't seen journalists asking is, well, all right, when you were put on notice 14 months ago in August of last year, what plans did Treasury and the other government agencies put in place in the event that the credit market seized up, that there was a huge collapse of asset values? And I'm fairly confident we will find out they didn't do anything. Well, you mentioned the question of sources, and one of the things that we've complained about is the kind of no-one-saw-it-coming angle, which you're just touching on, which it certainly looks a lot like the Iraq War story, where we were told no one could predict the post-invasion scenario that we're now experiencing. Well, in fact, of course, in both cases, people did predict the current situation. They just weren't the folks we were seeing on TV. So I guess the question is, why are they still not the people we're seeing on TV? Yes, well, that... Janine, is exactly what troubles me. And, you know, in the case of the Iraq scenario, remember that we now know 
We didn't know then for sure, but we absolutely now know for sure that the Bush administration was aware that there were no weapons of mass destruction. Knowing that, recognizing that you have an administration that will lie through its teeth to pursue a policy that's cost thousands of Americans and, and probably tens of thousands of Iraqis their lives, why would you hesitate to think that they might not be telling you the whole truth and nothing but the truth about something dealing with money, particularly when, as President Bush famously said when he ran for office, that the people at the top were his base, the haves and the have-mores. <laughs> Some of us have, have for years been warning about this. I, I wrote a book called Perfectly Legal that came out five years ago almost. I wrote it six years ago. And I say in the book, inevitably these devices that are making the super wealthy super wealthier will have to come apart They will have, because they involve artificially inflating assets. And when that happens, all of us will be worse off. Some of us, and I wasn't the only one, wrote stories there was a housing bubble four or five years ago. So it wasn't like this wasn't known. It wasn't like there weren't economists and government data telling you sooner or later the bubble had to prick and come apart. I just want to note that in that piece by Gretchen Morgenstern that Janine mentioned earlier that you had blogged about, that in that piece she actually had a scoop that showed that the CEO of Goldman Sachs was actually in the room as the bailout plan was being put together. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and Gretchen Morgenstern also revealed you know, that Goldman Sachs is on the hook for as much as $20 billion from AIG. And that's one of the important issues not being covered here. Uh, Henry Paulson, the Treasury Secretary, has devised a plan that is exactly what one would expect from someone who spent his whole career at Goldman Sachs, the premier investment bank, and by the way, where a lot of these toxic products and derivatives were cooked up and sold. And it turns out that one of his first actions, the one that the Wall Street Journal says triggered the panic, was the decision to not rescue Lehman Brothers, a competing bank. Then he uh, decides that he's going to rescue AIG. Guess who benefits from that first and directly? Goldman Sachs. Now we have pumped more than $120 billion into AIG so that people who wanted to cash out of AIG could get their money. You think it just might be possible that a little bit of that money went to people who are either Goldman Sachs or its clients? Well, we don't know because the government isn't asking and neither are reporters demanding answers. Well, many people perhaps overhopefully imagine that this crisis might lead to an actual reevaluation of what have been dominant ideas about regulation, the role of financial institutions and so on. What do you see as likely to happen and what role should or could journalists play? Well, you know, I've written two books about this, Perfectly Legal and Free Lunch, and they are about how we now have 28 years of experience with Reaganism. The average income of the bottom 90% of Americans is today what it was back in 1980 when you adjust for inflation, and the incomes of the top tenth of 1% and above have gone through the roof. It doesn't work. It works if your goal is to take from the, those with less to give to those with more. But fundamentally, it doesn't work. And I think the public, after years and years and years, is beginning to change. And one of the things I can tell you is someone who does an enormous amount of radio around the country. Five years ago, I would always get hostile calls. And people would say things like, President Bush has created the strongest economy in American history, which is utter nonsense. I'm not getting calls like that anymore. I'm getting callers who are saying, well, what do we need to do to fix this? How do we address this? And by the way, the most fundamental thing is elect a different Congress. Elect a Congress that is not in the pocket of Wall Street and the companies that Wall Street finances, which is where most of the campaign contributions come from. 
That was journalist and author David K. Johnston speaking with Steve Rendell and me in 2008. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. She's got a ticket. I think she's gonna use it. Think she's going to fly away No one should try and stop her Persuade her with their power She says that her mind is made you